everyone, welcome to Lay Reason. Today I have PhD student Finn Reed here to discuss a topic related to his thesis, traditional views on dreaming. In Meditations, the philosopher Descartes questions whether we can really know at any given moment whether we are awake or dreaming. He notices that our dream experiences often bear a striking resemblance to our waking experiences. He gives the example of sitting by a fireplace and holding a piece of paper in his dream to show how even under best-case scenarios of sensory perception, where there's no illusions involved, he cannot know if he is awake or dreaming. Is Descartes right? Are we really doomed to this kind of skepticism? Uh, well, I think the answer is is no. <laughs> Uh, it's definitely the short version of the answer. Descartes really interesting. He's thinking really seriously about um, the type of type of experiences we have while mm. we're while we're dreaming. And you know, as you say, he's dreaming that he's sitting next to a fireplace, and he, he says something like, "Look, it's really obvious to me that I am feeling the heat and that I am seeing, because what feeling and seeing are are having that kind of experience." And he has no doubt in his mind that he's having that kind of experience, right? Mm -hmm. um, and this account is still quite common, that, that dreams involve the types of experiences that we have in waking life. Um, this is called the hallucination view of dreaming. And a lot of people think it's true, and they think it's true for often similar reasons to why Descartes thinks it's true, that we really do feel as though we're having them, and we don't really have a reason to doubt that feeling. Mm -hmm. Does this mean that everyone's convicted to, or yeah, convicted to this position? We have to be skeptics? No, and I don't think Descartes convinced that he has to be a skeptic either. Um, we have really good reasons to think that we're we're not currently asleep. Um, the the first one being is that I often am asleep, and sleeping doesn't feel like being awake. <laughs> Uh, that seems quite silly, but it, you yeah. know, when I when I dream, I have these experiences, and then when I wake up, I go, "Oh, that's what dreaming was like." You know, because when I'm dreaming, it appears to me that I'm having these experiences. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, I'll wake up and go, "Oh, that was really less vivid than waking perception." For instance, I, I sure thought I was seeing a thing, but when I wake up, I can't recount any of the key features of it. And um, this often happens when people dream of other people. Mm -hmm. uh, so when when you dream of a, a friend, uh, you'll know it's them. In the dream, you'll have reported that you you saw and interacted with this person. But often that's just a kind of feeling of knowing. You know, if uh, you won't dream that their face has these sort of intricate details that faces usually have, mm -hmm. for instance. So I think we actually have some reasons to doubt that these actually are the same experiences. They just appear to us at the time to be the same experiences. Um. Yeah. I mean, what do you think? Do you think that Descartes, Descartes right and that we're doomed to skepticism? Um, I think what I find interesting about Descartes is, I guess, the added psychological force that, you know, the actual plausibility of this kind of dream deception has compared to other skeptical scenarios, um, like brain and vat argument, arguments or, or, you know, matrix style skepticism that we're all like bound to a machine and having, you know, our experiences fed to us. So I, I think, um, you know, the plausibility of this kind of dream deception 
Um, it's definitely worrisome. And I think it was, it was worrisome to Descartes too, right? I think there's accounts that he was genuinely doubtful, but at the same time, he, he did resolve um, the problem of dream skepticism. He, he developed a criterion to differentiate between waking experiences and dream experiences, right? Yeah, he talks about continuity. That's one of his big things. The other big thing is that he doesn't think God would let us be tricked all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but that's not a particularly popular view anymore. <laughs> um, one interesting feature of dreams is that as you fall asleep, you will be in your bed, hopefully, perhaps crashed on a sofa, and you'll have all these beliefs about yourself, uh, where you are, what you're up to, what you plan to do next uh, once you wake up, and then you'll be transported into this dream world where none of those beliefs are still there, or at least you can't tell that they're still there. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you're climbing Everest, <laughs> um, and it you know begins with you halfway up the mountain uh, yeah. you're having all these beliefs about how cold it is and, and uh, how, how hard the climb is and, and, and where you are and so on but that starts in the middle of an event right you very rarely do we dream about first being at a base camp yeah and slowly yeah. Uh, gearing ourselves up to climb the mountain and we go through the mountain we climb down and we rest and so on and so on uh, usually we're, we're thrust into the middle of these weird narratives and Descartes seems to think that that's just not a con uh, continuous yeah um, and that waking life isn't like that where we very rarely find ourselves in the middle of something that we have no recollection of how it started mm -hmm. um, and he thinks that's that's one way to tell tell dreams apart from waking life yeah is through memory he also talks about objects like appearing and disappearing out of nowhere I think that's that's also um, related to to this idea that dreams are discontinuous. That you know um, maybe a horse will just show up out of nowhere, and I won't question it. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. <laughs> I think this is really funny because Descartes is outing himself as having a really boring life because uh -huh. the kind of claim he's making is dreams are really wild all this strange stuff happens and it happens to you and you don't question it ever. Mm -hmm. And that's something to do with your kind of psychological state while dreaming. But yeah. just, there's loads of almost random things that seem to happen throughout a long dream. Um, yeah. And that doesn't happen in real life. Real life's kind of dull compared to your dream life quite often. You know, I've, I've often dreamt that I'm uh, naked in class in an anxiety dream. And I've never <laughs> once been naked in class in real life. You know, people dream that they're in hot air balloons or, like I said, they were climbing mountains and yeah, so on. Yeah. And they have these dreams all the time. Their dream world is populated by these narratives, these really wild and insane narratives. But in waking life, I played League of Legends for eight hours. <laughs> as I've never had a dream like that. In dreams, you are in League of Legends. <laughs> yeah. God, that would be tragic. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, the more we talk about dreams and the more we we discuss dream content, the more we find that it just isn't really anything like waking life. Yeah. And it oftentimes, at least once we wake up, seems to seems to lack a kind of vividness and a kind of detail that waking perception often has. Um, the way that we understand our lives through narrative seems very different from dreams. The things we do in dreams seem really different from the things we do in waking life. The kind of rationality that many of us have while awake seems absent in dreams. Mm -hmm. um, and also the two seem powerfully desynced in terms of beliefs and intentions and desires. Uh, when I dream, I have all these wild and different beliefs. I have no, no recollection of 
previous um, non-dream beliefs most of the time. Mm-hmm. So it seems like the more we talk about it, the, the more skepticism just seems unlikely. Yeah, yeah. Of course, a committed skeptic could still say something like, well, I, I could have, you know, the the impression or, or I could go through the motions of critical thinking in a dream, but it would all just be, you know, still, still a dream experience. Um, yeah, I think that's true. I think yeah. a, a, one of the interesting things about philosophy more generally is that you're never going to satiate uh, very convicted skepticists. Mm-hmm. They will just keep coming up with more and more implausible scenarios <laughs> that undermine views. So but annoying. at some point we have to go, that's really implausible. That mismatches with what we know about dreams right now. And, and like you said about the brain and the vat, mm-hmm. the more they build this up, like, oh no, actually we, we are rational right now, but it's still a dream or still could be a dream. Yeah. And you know, the more kind of think, oh, you know, it's, it's not wild and exciting, but it still could be a dream or um, and so on and so on, the more it just looks like that kind of brain in the bat scenario. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And it's just, ah, oh, I don't care. <laughs> I don't care if the brain in the bat. And I, you know, they can be convinced of that. I think we've got okay reasons to doubt it. Yeah. But even if it was true, it doesn't change how I do anything. That's true. Um, yeah. So I think the, the kind of account that Descartes specifically is worried about, that we have this kind of rich dream life. And how do we know we're not dreaming right now? Mm-hmm. I think we've got good answers to that because we know more and more what dreaming is like. Right. And we know that it doesn't look like living in real life. Right. So, um, and if you want, if you want to alter it um, to something closer to brain and vat stuff, well, that just doesn't look like dreaming. Mm-hmm. So shifting to, I guess, an alternative critique of Descartes' argument, I want to talk about. Um, I guess the two underlying assumptions that are dreams are experiences. You can have thoughts, beliefs, um, impressions during experiences and that dream reports or our, you know, our memory of dreaming immediately after waking are reliable, um, are a reliable source of, of, of what happens during dreams or what occurs during dreams. Because if either of those two, um, propositions are false, then we really aren't able to motivate the kind of skepticism that, you know, Descartes um, invokes in meditations. Yeah. So nearly everyone now thinks dreams are experiences. Mm -hmm. That when I am dreaming while dreaming, um, and I'm having all this thing, all these things happen to me in the dream, I really am experiencing something. Mm -hmm. Uh, what that something is depends on the view, but I really am having this experience. Um, and there's only one big view that thinks that dreams aren't this kind of occurrent experience, and that's Dennett's cassette theory. Uh, Dennett thinks yes. that while you're while you're dreaming, you're not actually having an experience. Instead, you're constructing the dream. You're recording a thing in your head, and then when you wake up that gets slotted into your brain and then your brain has that and thinks that that's what you were dreaming of. But actually all you were doing was constructing it and there was no occurring experience. Mm -hmm. Uh, Dennett's view is wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Dennett is writing in the late 70s and a lot of modern neuroscience has really harmed views like Dennett. Mm -hmm. Um, So we've, we've got a lot of neuroimaging things now. So if someone goes into a dream lab and you put loads of electrodes and things on their head, 
Uh, and, and more and more, we understand that there's lots of brain activity going on that doesn't look like recording activity. It doesn't look like you're, you're making up a narrative in the way that Dennett thinks you're making up a narrative. Mm-hmm. It looks like the brain is undergoing experiences. Um, it looks like it is, it's like it's like seeing something or imagining something. It looks like it's an occurrent thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's sort of one line. The other line that I think is really interesting is uh, muscle atonia. Mm-hmm. So when your brain goes sleepy, uh, it, it, it disables your muscles, at least a little bit. Um, so you're not thrashing around in your sleep. Your brain goes, okay, it's time for a still and quiet. But some people have disorders, REM disorder, for instance. Uh, that's where muscle atonia doesn't activate. Right? Your, 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 dream, your muscles are still going in your dreams. Mm-hmm. And what we will see is that people who dream of being attacked or, or something similar flail around wildly as though they're fighting off an attacker. Yeah. And, and this seems like, oh, they're having this real experience so currently to them. And they're acting as though that experience is happening. And it's unclear how a cassette theory deals with these mm-hmm. cases. Because um, let's, let's say that I asked you right now to construct a narrative and the narrative you were being chased mm-hmm. uh, by a, a dinosaur in <laughs> Jurassic Park. It would be really peculiar if you got up and started running. Yes. But if I um, put you in a VR machine and drugged you so you didn't know you were in a VR machine and had a dinosaur chase you in that scenario, it'd be very odd if you didn't start running, right? Because you think you're having this real experience and you're worried and that leads you to doing things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the second case is far closer to what dreams are like than what Dennett thinks dreams are like. Yeah. Um. So I'm, I'm, I'm interested in, in how, you know, the contemporary neuroscience data is better explained by dreams as experiences than Dennett's view and, and how that kind of methodology has developed um, as, as the science around dreaming has um, become more robust. So dreaming is at a really interesting point right now, but the philosophy of dreaming is at a really interesting point mm-hmm. where neuroscience has come a long way in the last 15, 20 years. Um, but not so much that it solved the field. Mm-hmm. So we're getting a lot of new things from neuroscience, from studying the brain while dreaming. Um, but they're all suggestions mm-hmm. or some evidence to think something. They're, they're, none of it's a cure. None of it's definitive just yet. Mm-hmm. Um, but neuroimaging stuff is really popular. So um, let's say that we put you in a dream lab and we attach the apparatus to your head and so on. One of the things that uh, we can slowly do is if we train the machine, so we get you to imagine things or we get you to see things while you're awake, um, and then you say what they are, so on and so on, you can hone in the machine so that the mental content you're experiencing is reflected on the screen's image in, so, in some way. Mm-hmm. So uh, that sounds really confusing. It's it's not. The idea is that if I, if I ask you to imagine a person, the machine shows a person shape. Oh, Wow. Yeah, and this is really cutting edge and sophisticated, and the image quality is garbage. Yeah. But if we hook these up to people who are dreaming, we'll often see some semblance of a, of a dream. So someone might say, once woken up, oh, I, I was dreaming that I was talking to Franklin. Well, that might match what we've had when, they were, when we plugged the machine into them because we saw a shape of a person. And then, mm-hmm. oh, they said they were talking to a person. They were having that kind of imagery, right? that kind of experience. Mm-hmm. So that, that's definitely one way. The other way is how we analyze lucid dreams. Um, 
So as we understand lucid dreaming more and more by measuring brain activity, we're able to interact with lucid dreamers more and more. Mm-hmm. And it seems like lucid dreamers are just having occurring experiences because uh, they can communicate outside of the dream. So one thing that people do is eye movement tests. So once someone realizes they're lucid dreaming, they're meant to uh, have their eyes move in certain patterns. And you can do that. You can have that control while you're asleep. Yeah. Um, so they will signal at a sort of a, a time uh, and do the, do the signaling move. And that's them communicating to things outside the dream. They're, they're saying to the person who's studying them, oh, I, I'm now aware that I am dreaming. Yeah. Uh, and that doesn't make any sense as far as I'm aware on, on Dennis' view. Yeah, yeah. And it wouldn't make sense on uh, Malcolm's Malcolm's view either. I know um, we haven't talked about Malcolm much, but he also introduces a kind of um, skepticism about dreams as experiences and also um, about the reliability of dream reports. Um, yeah. So um, Malcolm falls foul to the same kind of issues, I think. Again, mm-hmm. writing just a little too early to incorporate all this new, interesting empirical data. Mm-hmm. But the general worry about dream reports has definitely persisted. It seems seems like we can't always trust dream reports. In the same way that we can't always trust reports from people who are, in, are having psychotic episodes. Uh, people like Hobson think dreams are a form of psychosis, a kind of healthy form of psychosis. But that's to give you an idea of just how different you are while you're dreaming. Yeah. And would we attract reports from people who were having a psychotic episode about the content of the psychotic episodes? It might be quite dubious. Yeah. Um, but we set things up in lab conditions and we see what we can do. So waking people up at certain points in their REM cycle. REM stands for rapid eye movement. It's just a way of... Um, chartering brain activity while people are sleeping seems to lead to better dream reports. Uh, they have more vividness and you're woken up in such a way that your brain was in the middle of a narrative and you're mm-hmm. able to report that better. Um, and, and since we know people can communicate with the outside world, we've got a kind of way to verify that they were dreaming mm-hmm. as well. Right. Because, you know, they do the communication. You go and they go, oh, yeah, I did the communication. We go, oh, yeah, we know. Um, so it's like, okay, but they can communicate some aspects, right? They're able to tell us that we're dreaming and they're able to communicate some kind of content. And we know they did that because we were able to measure the pattern. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I think I think we have good reasons to think that we can trust dream reports in lab settings. Right. Um, Malcolm's probably unconvinced. I don't... But what are you going to do? Malcolm... Um... He, he posits like a very strict kind of verificationism. He thinks that it's, it's impossible for there to be, um, you know, other evidence of, of, of a dream occurring, um, mm-hmm. you know, besides, besides the dream report. So to him, you know, the, the, the REM, um, you know, the, the confirmations mm-hmm. of a dream during REM sleep or, or those images, they, they, um, they would kind of, Yeah, so the idea is something like, oh, look, we have this alternative means, mm-hmm. right? All, all we had before was dream reports. Uh, and they say, oh, no, look, look, people can communicate that they're having a dream, that they're having an experience. Mm-hmm. So okay, look, that's, that looks like verification, right? If he's a verificationist, this looks like verification that one is dreaming. Yeah. Uh, and are, are right about a very specific content piece of the dream that they're currently doing a pattern with their eyes. Mm-hmm. Um, if Malcolm wanted to be a stickler, he could say, eh, that tells you about one bit of the dream, doesn't tell you about all the other bits of the dream. Um, 
And then we might appeal to the neuroimaging stuff and say, oh, no, like we were able to track at least rough shapes. And that matches with the dream report. We've got a way to verify between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and maybe he's not going to be convinced. He's still going to say that this is, is not sufficient. It's not enough. I'm not so sure. I think in the next decade or 20 years, we'll get better at this and mm-hmm. his worry will look less and less uh, worrying. <laughs> but the other thing to say is that if we do follow Malcolm's lead and say, oh, look, we just can't say that much about dreams. Well, we just kind of have to give up talking about dreams full stop. And I don't think we have, I don't think his reason is good enough to do that. I don't think it's a reason that undermines all the philosophical work that's been done on dreams since he was writing. Mm-hmm. I just don't think it's a strong enough position mm-hmm. to do that. Yeah. So Malcolm's, um, I guess, challenge to dream skepticism, or no, sorry, <laughs> challenge to um, dreams as experiences, it, it does undermine like the kind of Cartesian skepticism though. So do you think that that made it, or did that make it kind of appealing at the time when there was less research about dreams? Yeah, probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, mean, I, I, I don't know. I wasn't alive or, or yeah. writing or, or trying to publish um, back then. But right now, Malcolm's looked at as really fringe. Yeah. And I kind of think his view of verificationism is really fringe. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Malcolm's position is increasingly one of a kind, but I, I would hesitate to say that it was ever popular. I see. So instead of um, that kind of Malcolm's verificationism, do you think, um, I guess, the modern study of dreams in, in science and philosophy has shifted to, I guess, a more abductive, like sort of explanatory approach where um, we focus on, you know, what, what theories of dreaming can best explain um, the data, etc.? Yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. it has. Um, that's certainly how I treat it in my thesis. Yeah. When I so for the person of my thesis, I don't have to come down on a particular side of what dreams are because I'm assuming certain things and looking at consequences of those assumptions. Mm-hmm. But when you read uh, modern accounts, it's, it's about evidence for their position rather than a deductive proof. So, for example, Jonathan Ishikawa, who has written a lot on the imagination theory of dreams, mm-hmm. on his I think it's his 2007 paper. He just says, oh, here are four reasons to think my view is pretty good. Yeah. None of that's a deductive proof, but he's like, oh, we can explain this data better and we can explain this data better. For instance, he talks about that dreams don't wake us up. Mm-hmm. And he thinks that's really good evidence towards his view. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that's what dreaming is, at least now, taken to be. So that's how we decide between these views. Mm-hmm. Is uh, Which one better explains the data we're gathering? Yeah. Makes sense. Um, so we've covered dream skepticism. The um, would you like to talk about different, um, or can we talk about different? I guess views about what what it is like to dream. Now that we've sort of established that you know it is it is like something to dream. What are the different um, views on 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 the nature or character of dreaming? So there are a couple of big views. Um, I would say there's a, an orthodox view. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is what Julia Driver calls it, and it's what I've taken to calling it. And the orthodox view is that, much like what Descartes says, that dreams are constituted by experiences like waking experiences. 
So when I am in a dream and I see something, that is like seeing that thing if I was awake. I have that I have that sensory experience. Mm-hmm. And this would mean that dreams are hallucinations, right? Or at least mostly hallucinations. Because you're seeing something that isn't there. You're having a sensory experience of a thing that isn't there. And that seems like a textbook understanding of what hallucination is. Um, sometimes illusions are included in the orthodoxy. Um, an illusion is where very roughly you misperceive something. You perceive something as having different qualities than it actually has. And there's been some really interesting work on that. Um, my favorite is if you put clamps on people's feet when they're sleeping, they will often dream of wearing really heavy, restrictive boots. <laughs> so you're giving them a, this experience, their, their blood flow is being cut off a tiny bit. Oh, so they have this experience and they misperceive that as wearing clunky boots. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, that's, that's one part of the, the orthodoxy that we have experiences like we would in waking life. Um, and the other part is about the attitudes we have in dreams, the kind of beliefs, intentions, desires. Right. So for, for most members of the orthodoxy, you form beliefs while dreaming. And this is part of what Descartes really worried about, right? He has all these yeah. sensory experiences. And in waking life, if I was to show you a card, you would form beliefs about what's on the card. Right. Um, and then um, also tying back into the dream skepticism, like if, if you can't have beliefs during a dream you can't be deceived so yeah yeah exactly exactly um so the common view the orthodox view is that one does form beliefs while dreaming and Mm -hmm. one has desires while dreaming and these are uh, of the same psychological type which is wordy but the same kind of thing as when you have waking beliefs and waking dream and waking desires Mm -hmm. and waking intentions um uh, and some of that's supported. I, I, I talked about muscle atonia earlier. Yeah. And you, you kind of running and, and so on. I, that gives us one reason to think that dreams are experiences, because you react as though it was an experience. Right, yeah. But it seems that you also form beliefs, right? Because you now believe that you're being chased, or else why else would you have run? Right, yeah. Um. So the orthodox view, despite being really old, we see evidence of the orthodox view all the way back in Aristotle. Uh, we see it at Descartes, we see it as a kind of general assumption up until very recently. Uh, Leibniz talks about dreams as though they work this way. Uh, Hobbes and Hume both talk about dreams as though they work this way. You know, so on, so on. Locke as well. So big names talk about dreams as if they work this way. Yeah. But now we see that as kind of supported, um, which, is, which is interesting to me, that the orthodoxy is somewhat better supported um, than other versions of dream theory. Mm-hmm. despite being our oldest version of dream theory. Wow, that's really interesting. Do you think it's also probably the most intuitive just to, you know, a person who has read nothing about the philosophy of dreaming? Do you think that's... Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, so let, let's say let's say you were telling me about a dream that you had last night. It seems like you would use language as though it was a, an experience and you had beliefs and so on. You'd say like, oh, I was climbing Everest in the dream. Mm-hmm. So, okay, yeah, that means you, you were having an experience of climbing Everest in the dream, right? It's like, oh, I, I believed you were close to the summit. Right? You, don't, you don't say that I, I had this weird dream belief or, or that I had something else. So, you know, I just straightforwardly believed that I was climbing Everest. And right. it's just because of the phenomenology of dreams. When people report dreams, they report as though they were believing and as though they were seeing and as though they were feeling. 
um, I think it's the orthodoxy among lay people as well as experts. I think it's the most common view of dreams okay. and the most kind of natural to us in many ways. So what are some unorthodox theories of dreams? <laughs> <laughs> um, so the, the big competitor has been the imagination theory. And the imagination theory uh, is interesting. So it says that dreams don't involve hallucinations or, um, or illusions. It, it involves uh, imaginings instead. Mm-hmm. So in the orthodox account, when you dream of a cat, you're having a sensory experience of seeing a cat or something like that. But that's what Ishikawa says. He says, look, close your eyes right now and imagine a cat. Right? He says, that's what's happening in dreams, that experience. So it's not one of seeing. It's not one of hallucination. It's one of imagining. It's mental imagery that you've conjured up through imagination. So it's still an experience, but it's a different yes. kind of experience. Exactly. It's still an experience. It mm-hmm. still doesn't work with dream skepticism. It still gets away from dream skepticism. Yes. Okay. Um, but th- it thinks that dreams are more like daydreaming or waking fantasy rather than hallucinations. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for what it's worth, they say that similar things about beliefs quite often. So I, I told a cop story about hallucinations and beliefs. Um, one that makes sense in kind of waking life. If you hallucinated something was in front of you, it seems like you form a real belief that that thing is in front of you. Right. But if you're imagining, you just seem to imagine something. There doesn't seem to be a, a belief that has to come about from that, mm-hmm. right? You might believe that you're imagining, and in rare cases, you might imagine that you believe something. But rather than believing that P, you might just imagine that P. And that gets you away from dream skepticism because no false beliefs are formed. Because right. you're not forming any belief. Right. So the imagination um, view, it, it just, it restricts the kind of experiences that you can have while dreaming. So you, you can't form beliefs. You can't, you can't have like thoughts in, in the same way that you can imagine that you have thoughts. You can imagine that you have beliefs. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. So I should say off the bat, a pluralism is po- possible. So it could be the case that some parts of dreams are like the orthodoxy says, and other parts of dreams are like imaginative experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe lucid dreams are one and not the other, and some dreams have different qualities. So, so. so it could be that both these views combine into a new view. Mm-hmm. If you if you were to say that dreams are imaginative experiences, and you were like, the orthodox is really bad, yeah, you're restricting the, the content. It's, it's like you were imagining a waking life, and that's what it's restricted to. Okay. So how how popular are is pluralism, you know, relative to imagination view and, and the orthodoxy? So I, I think the orthodoxy is probably the most popular view right mm-hmm. now. I mean, I'm, a really modern version. No one thinks that Aristotle's account is <laughs> But you get, you know, far more nuanced versions now of that view. Uh, I say that's quite popular. I, pluralism, I think, is quite popular as well. Uh, Rosen, who I, who I met at a conference and who was lovely, she forwards a, a pluralism. Mm-hmm. Um, where some aspects are hallucinatory, some are imaginative, and, you know, there's a kind of loads of different ways. And you get sui generis accounts, which just mean accounts that say drawing this analogy to waking life is mistaken. Uh-huh. Uh, and a couple of people believe those. Is that well. similar to Malcolm a bit? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, a different view than Malcolm, but right. just that the dreams are their own kind of experience. Yeah. So when I say dreams are 
like hallucination or like illusion or like imagination, mm-hmm. I've done something wrong because dreams aren't like those things. Dreams right. are their own thing. Right. Uh, they might have share some components with those other things, but they're not quite those other things. Um, some people think that's that's true. Yeah. As well. Um, some people think dreams are like mind wandering, which is a more unstructured imagination, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, there's not that many people writing on this. So for most people, the way they interact with the literature on dreams is going to be through these historic figures like Descartes. And because of that, and because of how intuitive it is, I think the orthodoxy is just so much more popular than other views. Yeah. Um, I guess, what are some reasons for preferring the imagination view or, or pluralism or even the orthodoxy? Um, so one view, which is a bit ad hoc, mm-hmm. um, is that, look, dream skepticism is really bad. And... Imagination <laughs> theory doesn't have dream skepticism. Yay! <laughs> Yay! Right, we get out of the problem. Yeah, that's, that's certainly one way to do it. What's interesting is we will talk about dream morality at some point. Is that dream morality seems so implausible to some people that it might give us reason to favor one type of view over another. So let's say that the orthodoxy entailed dream morality. Mm-hmm. Some people might say that just gives us really good reason to dislike the orthodoxy. That's an absurd conclusion. That entailment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so saying that something avo- avoids dream skepticism and that's to its benefit, it, I mean, it's a bit ad hoc, but I don't think it's awful. Yeah, no, that that's fascinating. Um, but is there any reason to prefer pluralism? Um, so I, if you were to prefer pluralism, yeah, I think you're just going to be trying to explain all these different features. It talks about explaining data, kind of a uh-huh. methodology yeah. of explaining data. And you might just think that Look, the data is not fully explained by either view. We've got all this raw data, so perhaps it's both. Yeah. Um, about different features. And you no, know, that seems okay. So let's say that you wanted to support uh, an imagination view. Well, one thing that's interesting about imaginations is that they're subject to the will in some way. I can control my imagination in some way, in a way that I don't feel like I can control dreams in some way often. Mm-hmm. Let's say I can control. Well, you know what type of dream does seem under our control? Lucid dreams. So perhaps lucid dreams are far more like imagination um, um, in their in their content and character. And maybe other types of dreams are closer to the orthodoxy. Mm-hmm. There's been, because like I said, neuroscience is in its infancy in, in lots of these places. A lot of the imagination stuff is about charting developmental progress. So, for example, kids start to engage in imagination at roughly the same point in development as they start to dream. And I say, okay, that's interesting. And there are some people who, if you destroy part of their brain, usually, well, I'm not saying go and destroy, when their brain is destroyed (laughs) in some kind of accident, or part of their brain is, they might lose the ability to imagine. This is called aphantasia. Mm -hmm. And people with aphantasia often can't dream. Sometimes they can, but it lacks loads of really important qualities. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it might be way more indeterminate, way more mixed and muddied. Um, you know, they might not be able to have very vivid dreams. Okay, well, that might give us some reason to think, think that you, uh, that, that imagination view is correct. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Schweitzgabel has done some stuff on colour indeterminacy. So people now always report that they dream in colour. Always. Yeah. Um, but in the past, in the 50s, they didn't. 
they would often report dreaming in um, grayscale and in, in, in black and white. And he thinks that this is in part to do with the television mm-hmm. um, and that you know, actually all of our imagination is indeterminate as well. It's colorless. And then we put color onto it afterwards. And he thinks like, oh, look, this seems like it's a game of imagination as well, because we do this with imagination. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the idea is that you're getting all these different data points. And I won't speak to how good or bad these data points are Yeah. Uh, right now, but you're getting all these data points and we're trying to explain which one. And there are some things the imagination view does quite well. I think the development point's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, Another point I talked about, the dreams don't wake us up point. Yeah. So when you are having a, an experience of a really loud noise, right, that seems to wake you up. You know, a, a, a big trash van drives outside and it's kind of grumbling along. Uh, you open a window, that wakes you up. Same thing with an alarm clock, that, that, that startles you awake, mm-hmm. right? But in the dream, you have the orthodoxy holds is you have loads of loud noises right your dream of loud things climbing everest is a very loud experience but you are suddenly asleep in bed mm-hmm. so if you're having the same kind of experience why are they doing different things and the imagination theory goes well because you're not actually having that experience you're having an imaginative experience instead because uh-huh. when i when i imagine a loud noise that doesn't do anything to me right mm-hmm. in the same way that experiencing does do something to me yeah so I guess there's there's a difference in um, experience in waking experiences and dream experiences and in, in how we may react to certain like mm-hmm. phenomenon um, such that in waking experiences you know if if you hear a loud noise you'll be startled but it seems that in dreams this doesn't happen. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, and and someone might think like Ishikawa does that that gives you good reason to prefer his view to an orthodoxy, mm-hmm. the imagination view to an orthodoxy. Uh, and the orthodoxy has got loads of reasons for it, it as well. Um, some of the neuroimaging stuff uh, supports it. The phenomenology is really strong for a hallucination or orthodoxy account. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it really does feel like you're seeing. I know what imagination feels like. Dreams don't feel like that. Uh, and yeah. I think that's still been the central focus of the orthodoxy. That it, No, it really does feel this way. It really does feel as though I am seeing really does feel as though I am having these beliefs. Um, and, you know, that's something that the imagination view would have to explain. Why Why is this phenomenology so deceptive? Yes, that, that makes sense. Yeah. The lack of deduction, I think, some people find frustrating. That we just have all these data points. Right, yeah. Like, how, do we, how do we fix this? And, you know, I don't think we can yet, but we might in the future... It's a very, um, at least to me, it seems a very interdisciplinary field of study. That's part of why I find it so interesting, Mm -hmm. which is, at least right now, loads of it is being informed by science, by modern, up-to-date neuroscience. You know, I'm I'm putting things in my thesis that are coming out this year or a year ago. Uh, You know, if you were to go and write on Hume, you're getting none of that, right? So you're getting all these new things and it... it, um, uh, and that's really interesting. And there haven't even been that many wide studies of dream experience, like polling people, doing survey stuff, gathering that kind of data. A lot of that's really new as well. Right. Uh, taking dreams seriously in this way is quite new. 
Um, so there's, there's lots of new things coming in and lots of neuroscience that's informative and really helpful and interesting. And that's cool. I think that is cool. It's, it's, not, a, it's not an armchair field. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I like that. Yeah. I mean, we've talked about how science can inform our philosophy of dreaming, but does it also go the other way around? Does our, you know, um, conception of, of dreaming inform how science is done about dreaming? Um. Yeah, I think so. Um, it certainly does in some ways. Um, so the more we understand about dreaming, the more, for instance, we might find it useful for therapeutic purposes. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been a big thing. I'm not quite sure if therapy is science, but the, the idea that our philosophy on dreaming and our understanding of dreaming can help inform other fields I right. think is, yeah. is, is true. Um, and, and for what it's worth, that's what the philosophy of dreaming has been for so long. And when you look at Descartes, Descartes not really interested in dreaming. He's interested in scepticism and he's using dreaming as a lens to examine something else. Mm-hmm. And I think that's how dreaming has been historically used as a, a way to talk about consciousness or a way to talk about mental states or a way to examine scepticism. Right. Um, dreaming as its own field is relatively new. But mm-hmm. using dreaming to talk about other things is ancient. I know um, in in Wint's book, she she talks about the philosopher's role as a cartographer, um, mm-hmm. sort of mapping out, you know, the 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 connections between different um, concepts or or and and she sort of like locates dreams as as just one. Um, one part in this in this network of like uh, how we understand consciousness and 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 broader you know concepts in philosophy of of mind or like phenomenology. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's that's true. Is that any you know really robust theory of mind is going to have to talk about dreaming at some point? Mm-hmm. Um, and I I talk about dreaming that way in my thesis, not to inform theories of mind. But uh, some people think dreaming is a bit like being addicted in the way that our brain is. I was like, okay, well, I'm talking about ethics and dreaming. So why don't I talk about the ethics of addiction? Oh. And see if that informs what we might say about the ethics of dreaming. And, mm-hmm. and I think that kind of way of looking at dreaming has persisted from these historic accounts. That we're using it to examine other things. Yeah. Uh, and that's really interesting. It means that when I'm doing this thesis, I get to talk about whatever I want. Uh, yes. It's just open pasture for discussion. And that's that's really nice. And I love the idea of a philosopher as a cartographer. One, helps my ego. <laughs> I think that's really important because it's a very delicate ego. <laughs> um, and the other thing is that I think she's right. Now, our, our idea should be to ask the right sort of questions and inform where we should be looking for this sort of thing. Um, I remember my supervisor, one of my supervisors, complaining about a survey that had been done on dreams, a quite small survey. It's like, they're asking all the wrong questions. And it's like, these questions are really unfocused or they don't get at the issue that we actually want them to get at. It's because they're written by scientists. Mm-hmm. And they're not, you know, they don't come in with that skill set of philosophy about being really precise about certain terms and, and how to communicate this idea really effectively to make sure you're not getting muddied responses back. Mm-hmm. And that seems one way in which a philosopher can act as a kind of guiding lens. Yes. Uh, I think I think that's true. Um, another question to ask is, can science solve dreaming by itself? Uh, and probably not, but mm. it, it can definitely help us, help us a ton. 
um, and, and has been helping us a ton. You know, theories of dreaming have got more elaborate and more convincing um, since science started weighing in. Mm-hmm. I guess I was just thinking that um, the philosophy of dreaming, it's an interesting example of progress in philosophy, is it not? Yeah, one of the few. Yeah. Um, <laughs> we, we talked at the start about views from the 70s, Malcolm and Dennett. Mm-hmm. And those are now just antiquated views. Yeah. I, 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 just, I don't know anyone who takes them particularly seriously. They can function as a test for your theory. Can it survive the kinds of criticisms they're bringing forth? But no one thinks that Dennett's right. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's quite, that's quite novel in philosophy a lot of the time. Um, for a view that's recent, I mean, 40 years is recent in philosophy, and that's just, it, it's been outdone by better views already, um, and, and part outdone because we've got more sophisticated accounts, and part undone by just empirical data gathering. Yeah, yeah. So that's nice. If, you, if you're worried that philosophy is really stagnant, you should do philosophy of dreams, because it's changing all the time. <laughs> yes. Wow, that's really exciting. Um being at the forefront of such a like I guess dynamic field yeah it's definitely interesting it's nice to be able to talk about new things Mm -hmm. um especially after a long undergrad of talking about old dead white men (laughs) yes Uh, philosophy of dreaming is also right now the biggest names in it including when you were talking about earlier are women yeah women Um, that's nice um, and it's all current and it's updating and there's there's lots of stuff to deal with and yeah I, I really like that about dreaming yeah that's that's really interesting thank you so much for uh, discussing some views on dreaming and, and the history of, of dreaming and philosophy yeah of course I hope yeah. other people are interested in it as well yeah I hope so too I know I am um, but that concludes this episode. I'd like to thank our audience for listening. And I'd love to have you on again, Finn. Um, thank you for your time. Yeah, thank you.